And this particular subject is prophetic events, still future. And Brother Fair has asked me to read from the 17th chapter of Revelation. Usually when uh, you mention the book of Revelation, people immediately think in terms of symbols which cannot be understood. But I think it would uh, be well that we point out that if God intended for the book of Revelation to be a part of his scriptures and his holy word, certainly it must have been intended that his servants would understand and be able to intelligently interpret the symbols found therein. And before we read this 17th chapter of Revelation, I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'll ask Brother C.W. Stevens, if he'll offer prayer, to have Bibles with you. We would assume that a lot of you attend a Bible lecture that you would bring your Bibles. And uh, this is rather a crotchety thing with our brother Ted Fair because his feeling is if you come to a Bible talk, you should have your Bibles with you. So let's turn, if you will please, to the 17th chapter of Revelation. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven veils and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. And I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name that was written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. The ten horns which thou sawest 
are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, and where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Brother Ted Fair's subject, Prophetic Events Still Future. Brother Ted. My friends, when we come to the study of Bible prophecy, there is a remarkable statement in the first book of the epistle of Peter, which gives us a great deal of help in knowing how the prophecies were revealed for our edification. In the first epistle of Peter, the first chapter, and verse 10, we read, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now this is the prophets themselves. Now they, it is recorded here that these men, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, and so forth, inquired and searched diligently the prophecy that they themselves had written. And this is what they did, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So if we look carefully at this uh, verse 11, you will see there are two things mentioned about what the prophets themselves searched for. And the first is what? And the second is what manner of time? So there's two things. The what are the signs that God has given us through his prophets, and the what manner of time are the time periods that God has given us through the prophets. A lot of people make a great mistake in saying that the study of prophecy is futile, the study of prophecy is detrimental, the study of prophecy has had many people before that studied it incorrectly, and all these um, people were wrong. However, it is unthinkable, is it not, that one-third of the Bible being devoted to prophecy would have a detrimental effect upon the minds of those who delve into it. This doesn't seem to make sense, and I think that you will see why as we go along. Now, another important 
prophecy to which I want to draw your attention is found in the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 2. Because here is revealed a special message to this generation here that is living now. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. Why? For the vision is yet for an appointed time, there's the word time again, but at the end it shall speak, and not lie. Now there is a startling statement, my friends, that at the end the vision or the prophecy would speak plainly and it would not be wrong. Now we turn over to the book of Daniel, one of the prophets who had more to say about the time periods than any other. And if you look at chapter 12 of the book of Daniel at verse 6 and 7, you will see that Daniel asked the question, How long shall it be to the end when the vision shall speak and not lie? And he says, And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And that's the very question we today are asking. How long? When will this great scheme of God with mankind come to a terminus? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now Bible scholars, beginning long before the time of Sir Isaac Newton, the great physicist, and carried on by him, he wrote several books on prophecy, and many other students of prophecy since, have tried to figure out what the great scheme of God's timetable was and how it fitted in with the prophecies which Daniel has enunciated here in the uh, 12th chapter and also in other chapters in his book. Now we have on the wall here a chart which I think uh, depicts the broad general structure of the time periods. We haven't time this afternoon to go into a long dissertation on the time periods and why we arrive at these figures. Some of you may have done some work on this yourselves. Our purpose here is to show you that according to the time periods given principally in the book of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation, that a pattern can be formed. In order to find out when the time periods end, it is necessary to find out when they start. Then if you know how long the time period is, you can measure from the starting point and come to an ending point. And this should tell you what the structure of the time periods is. And this is what we have attempted to do on this chart. The start of the time period, in our opinion, is the year that Nebuchadnezzar, the great desolating power against the nation of Israel, assumed ascendancy to the throne of Babylon. And that was in the year 604 B.C. And that also was the year, we believe, that he received the vision of the great 
17, if this, if this chart is true, should be a very, very significant year in the prophetic structure. If the starting point is 604 B.C., and if you do measure down a period of 2,520 solar years, you do in fact come to the year 1917. Now we said earlier that a lot of Bible students were wrong. The people used to run up on top of mountains and wait there at 4 o'clock in the morning for Christ to come, and of course he didn't come, and the whole uh, subject of prophecy uh, began to be ridiculed. However, all Bible scholars, including Sir Isaac Newton, were not wrong and did have a very important grasp of the subject. And one of the Bible scholars who wrote uh, in the year 1886, he was a Church of England clergyman by the name of Grattan Guinness, had this to say in his book, Light for the Last Days. <clears throat> he was discussing the broad structure of the prophetic periods, and this is what he said. Now this was written in 1886, and remember what we said in a former lecture, how difficult it is to predict the future even for five minutes, never mind for 20 or 30 years. But this is what he said. If the year 604 B.C. witnessed the rise of the typical Babylon, what event is the corresponding year in this time of the end likely to witness? He says the secret things belong to God. It is not for us to say. But he says there can be no question that those who live to see the year 1917 will have reached one of the most important, perhaps the most momentous, of these terminal years of crisis. Well, my friends, what happened in 1917? Was it like every other year, or did it fulfill any of the prophecies which had been in print for 2,500 years? Grattan Guinness was right. Those who did witness the year 1917 did see some remarkable events, and this is what they are. The first one is that it was 2,520 years from the ascendancy of King Nebuchadnezzar in 604 B.C. But it also was the terminal point of another remarkable period. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12, at verse 12, we have this figure of 1,335 mentioned. 1,335 lunar years, which was the Mohammedan method of reckoning time, taken from the flight of Mohammed in 622 A.D. And remember, Mohammedanism had their year one on the date of Mohammed's flight, or Hagera. In one night, Mohammed, on a white horse, started off from Mecca, came to Jerusalem, went to heaven, and back to Mecca, all in one night. That was in the year 622 A.D., so the Mohammedans tell us. Now, that was the year one for Mohammedan the Mohammed religion. 1,335 lunar years from the flight of Hagera, the Hagera of Mohammed in 622 A.D. brings us down to the year 1917. Now, why is that important? Simply this. The Mohammed power was the great desolating power of the land of Israel. They were the 
ones who pillaged and stripped the country and made it into a howling, desolate wilderness. Now, the important point is that in the year 1917, the Mohammedan power came to an end, and they switched reckoning time over to the Roman system. The year 1335 was the last year that was reckoned according to the Mohammedan calendar. One of our brethren used to walk around with a Turkish coin in his pocket, and on one side was English with the year 1917 on it, and on the reverse side was Mohammed characters, or Turkish characters, with the year 1335 on it. From that point on, the Turkish power had dried up. The great symbol of the river Euphrates had dried up, and Turkey was no longer in possession of the land of Palestine, another tremendously important landmark. And you'll remember also that in the year 1917, in connection with the Mohammedan power, that the desolator was driven from the city of Jerusalem by the British army under Lord Allenby. But another very interesting thing happened, and I want to particularly have you note the date. It was November the 2nd, 1917, that the British foreign minister, Lord Balfour issued his famous declaration regarding the land of Palestine, in which he said that His Majesty's government viewed with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. That, that declaration was issued on November the 2nd, 1917, just at the same time that Jerusalem was liberated by the British army and the Turks were driven out. Now, the sixth thing that happened of a very important nature, right almost on the same date, not quite within a week, was the Russian Revolution, when the great communist power, which we're going to talk about more in a minute, came to the power in Russia. That was in November, the November Revolution. It's called the October Revolution, but it really happened in our calendar in November. The November Revolution when communism was enthroned in the vast Russian Empire. So the year 1917 was an exceedingly important year for those who were looking for the fulfillment of prophecy. Now in the 12th chapter of Daniel, again in verse 11, a further period of 1290 days or years on the day for the year principle is given. If you add 30 more years to the year 1917, you come to the year 1947. And if this chart is correct, a rather important event should have happened in connection with the ascendancy of Israel, because that is the land that God is watching in or around that time. Now, a very important event did happen in the year 1947, namely that on November the 2nd, 30 years to the day, the United Nations, in their first and only unanimous decision, voted that the land of Israel be partitioned and the smaller partition given to the Jews and the larger partition given to the Arabs. That was exactly, my friends, 30 years to the day from the issuance of the Balfour Declaration in the year 1917. Now, this may be coincidence, it may be very fortuitous, 
that these two remarkable events in connection with the ascendancy of the tiny nation of Israel took place exactly 30 years apart. We don't believe it is a coincidence. We believe it is a divine fulfillment of prophecy. Now the last segment is this difference between 1335 and 1290, which is a period of 45 years. If that is added to the year 1947, we come down to the year 1992, which is awfully close to the year 2000, which uh, you heard about last year during this series in connection with God's 7,000-year plan. Now, will you please do me a favor? Will you please not go home and say that there was a young fellow uh, with a big mouth who came down here to Arkansas and he said that Christ wouldn't come until 1992. So we can relax, we can eat, drink, and be merry because this fellow told us he had a chart on the wall and he said that we could all forget it because Christ wouldn't be here until 1992. That isn't what I say at all because I, I think you'll be here long before that. But what I am saying is that in this date, 1992, because it says that Daniel would stand in his lot at the end of the days, that we believe that probably this is the date that the millennium will be set up as a completely integrated kingdom. And all things necessary for the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth will have been accomplished by that time. And we are now quite a long way along here. We're now at the year 1963. We've only got 29 years to go. And there's an enormous amount of prophecy which has to be packed into those, that short time before the kingdom will be set up by Christ as a fully integrated and fully running uh, empire. So, for the next few minutes, we propose to deal now with the what part of Peter's statement. Remember he said that the, the um, prophets wanted to look into what and what manner of time that the spirit which was in them did signify. The first uh, syllable of the word signify is sign, S-I-G-N. So now we want to talk for a few minutes on the signs that we have that the end is virtually upon us and that the prophecies which Jesus and, and the other prophets foretold are rapidly crowding in to a climax. What are then the signs that we have and these we wish to discuss now for a few minutes. Well, undoubtedly, the principal sign that we have, and one that can be demonstrated uh, beyond cavil and quibble, is the sign of the nation of Israel. It just, my friends, is not fortuitous that the nation of Israel, just a few weeks after this date, November the 2nd, 1947, set themselves up as a sovereign state. And now they are one of the more prosperous countries of the world, and even their knowledge and inventiveness is being exported to underdeveloped countries of the world. This, in our opinion, is no mere coincidence. The sign of the fig tree is exceedingly important and is the easiest uh, to see. However, we have dealt at some length with that, and we propose only to mention it. But we do want to uh, mention this, that even this sign has been fixed with respect to time. And will you open your Bible and look at the prophet Joel? 
because the fixation of the time is just as important, in many respects, more important than the sign itself. And this is in the third chapter of Joel, verses 1 and 2. For behold, he says, in those days, what days? And in that time, what time? When I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the time he's talking about. Or as the Revised Version says, restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is I will bring together all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel. This is the land and the place where this is going to happen whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now in order to fix again that the time we are talking about is when Jerusalem will be compassed with armies, I want to turn, have you turn to the prophecy of Zechariah, the 14th chapter, and verses 2, 3, and 4, because this fixes the time for another important event of which we will say more later. In the 14th chapter of Zechariah, at verse 2, the writer, talking about the same thing, says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day, upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. This fixes that at the time when Jerusalem is compassed with armies, that Jesus Christ himself will come back to this earth, because it says here his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. This is very emphatic and plain language, my friends. And that is the reason why Christadelphians are so tremendously excited about the Jewish sign. Because all scripture has as its focal point the building up of the nation of Israel and then the coming of their long looked for Messiah to take over the reins of government and expand that government to include the whole earth. So much then for the Jewish sign. It's the most important, but we have spent more time on it uh, previously, and that is all we intend to say about it now. However, there is another sign that is just as easy to read. You don't have to be a PhD in astronomy or something like that to read the biblical signs. All you have to do is be able to read English, and the Bible is written in that language, and we can read it. But the next sign about which, about which I wish to discuss is the sign, you might say, of the Cold War. We said that this singularly important year, 1917, had about six signs in connection with it. And one of them was the rise to power of the communists in the mighty nation of Russia. Now, in the early days, people used to joke about the Russian Revolution. And it isn't too long ago, I don't know what it's like in Arkansas, but up in Canada, 
our papers used to show pictures, and this is only about 1955 or 6, we used to get pictures in our papers of a great field full of tractors. None of them could work. Every one of them were absolutely worthless because they couldn't make them go. Next couple of weeks you get a picture of a Moscow street and there'd be 10,000 people on bicycles and one car parked on the side and we were told that that was the only car in Moscow and it, even it wouldn't run, so forth. The whole thing was a joke. The Russians were a bunch of backward bumpkins. They couldn't build a thing that would run and uh, they were treated as almost a laughing stock. Well, they came to power in 1917 and they got to work and they started educating their people. I'm no communist, goodness knows, but you know as well as I do what happened. And after a while, World War II came along. In 1939, it broke out. It was a terribly long war, a very costly one, and one that caused much hardship and bloodshed. In 1945, World War II was drawing to a close. And the United States used a weapon on two cities of Japan, the uh, terror of which virtually staggers the intellect. The atomic bomb that was used against Hiroshima in Japan wrought frightful devastation and killed literally hundreds of thousands of people and wrecked blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks of buildings. And that bomb was the equivalent of 10,000 tons of TNT. In 1952, I think it was, the United States dropped a bomb on the Eniwetok Atoll in the Pacific Ocean, and it was the equivalent of one million tons of TNT. It completely obliterated that rock, rock island in the Pacific Ocean. Both sides today, we are told, have bombs not measured in the number of tons of TNT, because the zeros after the figure are too long for newspapers to print, so now they call them megatons. A megaton is the equivalent of one million tons of TNT, and now both sides claim that they have a bomb of a hundred megatons. The first bomb was 10,000 tons of TNT. This is 100 megatons of TNT. And so scientists reckon that there is enough atomic energy today in the world to completely destroy every living thing three times over. And they're still building more. No wonder is it that the famous statement made by Jesus in the 24th chapter of Matthew, and I'll read it to you. This is in the 21st verse. Then there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And then Jesus says, And except those days should be shortened, 
there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Bible students have read that for many generations, but the import of those verses was not fully understood until comparatively recently. And so in 1945, after the war ended, we have the emergence of two hostile powers on this planet. Time went on. 1957 came. And instead of the Russians not being able to get a tractor that would run, suddenly they opened up the space age. You know, we live in a funny world. I have a boy, eight years old, and he reads this stuff about rockets and Sputniks, and he has a toy uh, picture and so on that people, the kids in the neighborhood give him. And uh, anything like, any time that something like this comes out, he stands there and he says, so they're going to put a man on the moon, as if it's a common everyday occurrence. What do you know? They're going to put a man on the moon. We live in a very funny age when children can talk about putting men on the moon as if it's like taking a trip down to the corner drugstore. That's the kind of a world we live in, and that is the reason, my friends, why a great fear stalks this land. People are scared green inside. If President Kennedy ever were to announce the truth, there'd be heart attacks and insanity in this land like you'd never heard of before. And so they keep the American public carefully shield, shielded from the real facts because they're afraid to reveal the fear and the terror that would ensue were the real facts presented to the public. But that's the kind of a space age in which we live when we are on the brink of worldwide destruction at any moment. Well, the prophecy in the 38th of Ezekiel states that this great Russian power, and this, again, we haven't got time to go in to prove why we can identify it as Russia, is going to invade from the north down into this strategic land mass between the Mediterranean Sea and the Persian Gulf, and in its wake it is going to attack the nation of Israel. Why is it that Russia, and probably very soon, is going to make a, a thrust of a tremendous mighty force into the Middle Eastern area and try and obliterate the nation of Israel as it goes. The reason, my friends, is very simple and it is strategic. And that is that we live in this. that mean? That means that every single thing that turns in this country runs on oil or turns on oil. Oil is a requisite for peace and for war. Now the trouble is that some countries have oil and some have not. You in the USA are very fortunate. You have a lot of oil underneath. It's all right. But there's one strategic area of the world that has no oil. And that is this vast area of Western Europe, England and Great Britain included. They have no oil. 
94% of the oil that Western Europe uses comes from the Middle East by tanker. And at any moment, they are only able to build up a six-day supply of oil in Western Europe for their needs. So the continuation of the flow of oil is absolutely essential to the economy of Western Europe. So if you can get control of the source of oil, which is the Middle East, down here, and all you don't have to do any farming, all you have to do is get control and shut the six-day supply off, then you can bring Western Europe to a standstill in six days. And no doubt this is exactly what the Russians intend to do. Uh, they intend to paralyze Western Europe by shutting off the oil supply which comes from the Middle East by tanker. And it would only take about six or eight days to accomplish the task. And if that happened, Western Europe couldn't get a plane off the ground, it couldn't get a tank on the field, because there'd be no oil or gasoline for it to use. You can see, therefore, the tremendously strategic position that this nation of Israel and the surrounding area finds itself in. That, then, is possibly the next or next but one thing on the prophetic time calendar. The invasion by Russia of the Middle East area and the nation of Israel in particular. Now there is a sign quite coincident with that sign and may be part of it. And we will call it the sign of the Little Cold War. The other sign is the Big Cold War. What's the sign of the Little Cold War? The sign of the Little Cold War is the Cold War that has been going on since 1948 between the Arabs and the Jews in the Middle Eastern area. Ever since the Jews defeated the Arabs in the War of Independence, only a truce has been declared. The Arab nations which surround Israel are still officially at war with the nation of Israel. And so, Today we have Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Yemen banded together with the one purpose to exterminate Israel and they are supplied with Russian arms. Now Nasser has declared on many occasions that it is his avowed purpose to push the Israelis into the sea. This may well be the trigger which sets off the invitation for Russia to enter the Middle Eastern arena. Should the Arab nations confederate themselves together, as is mentioned in the 83rd Psalm, and decide to attack Israel, then Israel is going to win, because we know that God is behind the nation of Israel and is not behind the other nations. And it could easily be that this will be the spark or the trigger which will start off the war in the Middle East and which will give Russia the grand invitation to enter ostensibly on the side of the Arabs but really for a grasp uh, of the whole strategic area. Last week, Israel had a practice general mobilization. All people were called to a general mobilization practice, mind you, to see how it worked. So you can see the tension that is already there even as we are talking. The Russian intervention may well be the evil thought 
that occurs to this vast nation to come into this strategic area and try and take possession of it. However, we know from the balance of the prophecy in the 38th chapter of Ezekiel that Russia is going to meet its end. The Russian army is going to be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. This is delineated in the 38th and also in the 39th chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Now, my friends, it is at this particular moment, as we read from the prophecy of Zechariah, that Christ comes and his feet stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. We aren't just exactly sure precisely the time that Jesus will come. Some think that the words of Jesus himself in the 24th of Matthew are in fulfillment of this invasion where it says, or where he says, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now a lot of interpreters think that the sign of the Son of Man in heaven is the invasion of Russia into the Middle Eastern area. Others think that Christ will have come before that and that he will be recognized and ready to fight for the nation of Israel as its commander-in-chief and lion of the tribe of Judah at that time. We can't be sure which it is, but we can be sure that coincident with the general time when Jerusalem shall be encompassed with Russian armies and Arab armies, that Christ will come and raise the dead and proceed to set up his everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. Now we must pass on quickly to uh, another sign, and this is the sign of the alignment as it is mentioned in the 17th chapter of Revelation, which was read this afternoon. If any of you have Bibles, I would ask you to turn to the 17th chapter of Revelation because we want to make a comment or two upon it. In the 17th chapter of Revelation, there are mentioned three, as it were, actors on the stage that the revelator presents to the reader. If you can visualize uh, that you are looking at a stage and the curtains open and you see three actors there ready to do their acting out in this drama, that is something, the idea that the revelator gives in the 17th chapter of Revelation. The first actor is called a whore or a harlot, an evil woman. In verse 1, it says, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Down in verse 5, we find that upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So not only was this woman a whore, but she was the mother, mother of daughters who were also following the same profession. The second actor on the stage, as the curtain is drawn back, is presented to us in verse 7. And this is called a beast, or an animal. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, and of the beast that carrieth her. So now we have it that this woman is astride, or riding upon this beast, 
just as you or I might ride upon horseback. And when you are riding upon a horse, you are in control of that horse. When this woman is riding upon this beast, she is also in control of the beast. And the third group of actors on the stage are mentioned in the latter part of the seventh verse. The beast had seven heads and ten horns. Now we know that beast, head, and horn all symbolize powers or national powers. Now what does the prophecy say? How does this drama act itself out? We find in verse 12 that the ten horns upon this beast are identified. You don't have to be a genius to find out what they mean because it tells us right here the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings or ten powers. So that's plain enough. Now what happens? How do they act their drama out? They receive power, it says, in the same 12th verse, one hour with the beast. So the, the power of the beast and the power represented by the ten horns or ten kings receive power or become powerful for one period of time, which is called here an hour. They are in alliance and they receive power together. Now what is the purpose of this, uh, this unholy alliance of powers? It is stated in verse 13 and 14. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now what are they going to do? These shall make war with the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ himself. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Now what period of time is this? Is this before Christ comes or after or when? Well, it mu this must take place after the manifestation or the coming of Christ. Because the balance of that verse 14 says, speaking of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, which is Jesus Christ, the balance says, they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful, which is a description of the immortalized saints. So the Jesus must have come by this time and raised the dead and judged those who are to be judged worthy of immortality and having, having given immortality to them, because they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So it must be uh, after the resurrection that this takes place, and it also must be, I think, after the destruction of the Russian hosts on the mountains of Israel. Now who are these actors? It's all right reading about them and what they did, but who are they? Let's see if we can identify them. We believe that the ten horns, that our ten kings, are the same ten powers which are represented by the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's great image, and they are, in fact, the nations of Western Europe which constituted the Holy Roman Empire of the West. That's who we believe the ten horns are. And, as our brother mentioned last night in his remarks, the embryo of this vast resurrection, as it were, of the Holy Roman Empire is the European common market, or the European economic community, as it is called. 
This community was formed not only for economic reasons, but also for political reasons, as they have delineated time and time again in their deliberations. And so we see developing in Western Europe before our very eyes in the newspapers a great third force in the world. A United States of Europe, they call it. General de Gaulle, who envisions himself as a resurrected Charles the Great, has written down what he calls a grand design for Europe, in which he envisages one vast political empire from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ural Mountains of Russia. It could easily be, my friends, that after the destruction of God or Russia on the mountains of Israel, that the people left in Russia will turn to this great third force for protection and sympathy. And it could very well be that before de Gaulle or his successor is finished, that there will be a United States of Europe from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ural Mountains. It isn't insignificant or insignificant, we believe, that Khrushchev's son last week had an audience with the Pope. How did this European economic community come about? How did the iron and the clay start to mix when in Nebuchadnezzar's image it was said they shall not cleave one to another? Well, they're going to cleave for one short period of time before Christ demands submission of them. And how it came about was by the Treaty of Rome. Not the Treaty of Washington, not the Treaty of London or the Treaty of Ottawa, but the Treaty of Rome was drawn up in 1957 in which this grand alliance was consummated. It takes in the territory virtually intact of the Holy Roman Empire. Britain is excluded, as you know, from recent events. Now what's going to happen? We believe that when Christ comes, the loud voice mentioned in the 14th chapter of Revelation at verse 7 is going to go forth to all nations. And this is what the loud voice says. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. We believe that this vast alliance of Western Europe will, will not heed this command to give glory to him. Can you imagine the vast nation and wealthy nation of Western Europe getting a command to give glory to him. And who's the him? Him is some Jew over in Jerusalem that's demanding submission. Can you imagine this Greek Goliath uh, meekly laying down his sword to the David who says this? By no means. And so they have one mind, says the scripture. And what is that mind? It says, these shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. So there's no doubt about what is going to happen to the nations of Western Europe. They're going to be under submission, all right, but it's going to be after a very severe struggle with the newly formed and uh, nation of Israel. By this time, Jesus himself will be the king thereof. So in summary, then, let us say that the beast in our opinion, is the political and economic union of Western Europe. The ten kings, or ten horns, are the states making up the union. Now let's talk about 
actor, the other actor or actress for a minute, which is the harlot, the whore, called Mystery Babylon the Great. Now let's just look a little more closely at the 17th of Revelation here, because there's some very interesting things said about the whore so that we can identify her. The first thing is that she's a false woman, an evil woman. She's not only a harlot herself, but she has taught her daughters to be harlots, which is even worse than being one herself, perhaps. Now in verse 2, we find that she has political aspirations with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. She has lent her body to the kings of the earth for political reasons. Verse 6, she is drunken with the blood of the saints. She has been a lifelong persecutor of the real followers of Jesus and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, says John, I wondered with great admiration. We've already mentioned that she rides the beast. She has the reins in her hands to steer the beast at her bidding in whatever direction she wants the beast to go. And lastly, in verse 18, what a statement this is. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city. Not only is she a woman, but she's a city. What kind of a city? A city on seven mountains. In verse 9, on which the woman said it, we all know that the city of Rome is built on seven hills. And this woman, which is a great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. She's in control at this point of time of the kings of the earth. In other words, she is a political power. Now, don't ever think that this woman doesn't know this because she makes a very revealing statement in the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation at verse 7 where she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. When is this? When? What point of time does this come into the picture? Well, this comes into the picture during the seventh vial. We get this from the balance of the 16th chapter of Revelation, beginning at verse 17. Christ, however, comes during the sixth vial, because we get that from verse 15 of chapter 16. First there's the coming of Christ, then there's the development of this vast, false, political, ecclesiastical system. And it is none other, of course, than the papal system, the Roman Catholic Church. Why do you think that it says this woman had names full of blasphemy? A name of blasphemy. Well, let me tell you just two of the things that are claimed for this system. One is, they claim that the head of it, who is called the Pope, is God upon earth. Is that blasphemous for human flesh? You know, I often think if, uh, whenever I, I like, or I like to think of uh, these people with great titles, to get them stripped off of the 
big hat and the tie and the collar and the turn collar and all the uh, jewels and gold investments and get him there standing in his underwear with a pair of shorts on and a t-shirt and then say, this is God upon earth. This is how I, I like to think of the claim that these people, I don't like to think of them mounted in a throne with 15 policemen carrying them down the streets of Rome. I like to think of them there standing in his underwear and having me say, well, is this God upon earth? Is this blasphemy? That's how I like to think about this claim. In 1870, the claim was made for the Pope that when he spoke ex cathedra, he was infallible, without error, without sin. Again, can you imagine this being dubbed any other word than blasphemy? Well, again, how did it work, or how will it work? The Treaty of Rome in 1957, the same year that launched the Space Age, launched this vast, evil, political, economic, and religious idea, a United States of Europe. All Catholic countries, Agnar of Germany is a Catholic, De Gaulle is a Catholic, Fanfani is a Catholic, Dr. Spock of Belgium is a Catholic. They're all Catholic countries, and we're not without the influence right here. We happen to have in this country a president who is a Catholic, an attorney general who is a Catholic, the leader, house leader is a Catholic, the majority leader of the Senate is a Catholic, the head of the CIA is a Catholic, and there are many more that I haven't time to name right in this country today. And so to get all the loose ends gathered together and to make sure that all things would be situated so she could say, I sit a queen and am no widow, this evil system called a vast council together last October, called it the Ecumenical Council in October of 1962, with the avowed purpose to see if a union between the daughters of the harlot, which are undoubtedly the popular churches because they believe a vast number of the doctrines of the church, like the Trinity, like the immortality of the soul, and many others, a vast council was gathered in to see if they couldn't work out a union between them. Now, a union that the Catholic Church has in mind isn't the same as Norman Vincent Peale has in mind. When you talk about a union with the Catholic Church, you come into them. They don't come to you. They stay where they are, and you make the trip to Rome and bow the knee and kiss the ring. And so we find today that the Protestant churches, I don't know what it's like down here, but up in Canada, are falling over themselves to get back in under the umbrella of the papal system used to be in my town that you could always tell a Catholic church because it had a cross on it. And the other churches didn't. But now, the way you tell a Protestant church is the size of the cross. Because they have far bigger crosses than the Catholic church can afford. Tremendous crosses built of stainless steel and aluminum and out in front of the church. This symbol of the cross is called in the scriptures the mark of the beast. And this is being placed on Protestant churches up and down the face of this land with amazing rapidity today. The papacy will direct the European economic community. It rides the beast. It's got the reins. It's in control. And so this is a tremendous sign which uh, it may not come to its full development before the coming of Christ. We don't know. 
But we certainly can see that these two signs, the development of the Western Roman and the resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, both in its political and ecclesiastical phases, is unfolding at a very rapid rate before our very eyes. The Ecumenical Council will be reconvened later this year, and you will see startling developments made about union with the Protestant and uh, Orthodox churches. Now, what is the result of all this? Is the vicar of Christ on earth, so-called, going to win, or is he not? Well, let me read you from the second book of the Thessalonians. We usually don't consider the Apostle Paul much of a prophet. He is, he's called more an apostle than he is a prophet, but in the second book of Thessalonians, he made a remarkable prophecy, which I now want to read to you. This is in the second epistle, um, chapter 2 and verse 8. Then, says the apostle, shall that wicked one be revealed. And we believe that this is a prophecy of this great evil system, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So at the coming of Christ, there can be no doubt about the outcome of the contest between the so-called vicar of Christ and Christ himself. This system will be destroyed with the spirit of his mouth at the brightness of his coming, says the apostle. And in the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation, we have exactly the same picture presented to us because there it, it depicts the destruction of this vast evil system. And the revelator says, right after she says, I sit a queen and am no widow, right after that in verse 8, it says, Therefore shall her plagues come in death, mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God which judgeth her. Now, my friends, a warning is given. We're all going to be subjected to this unity idea. Brotherly love. We're all going in the same direction. Maybe you're taking any cooperation or unity of thought and working together and all this. It says here in quite plain language, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. These aren't depicted as laudable qualities. They are depicted here as sins. So there then, my friends, in conclusion, is a um, short account of some of the prophetic, prophetic events still future. We have tried not to be dogmatic. We have tried even not to set these up in any specific order of unfolding. But we have tried to show you that before our very eyes, the fulfillment of prophecy is there. Just what order it's going to take place in, we aren't quite sure. But it's a very interesting study. And in conclusion, I want to tell you how interesting the study is. Because a lot of people still ridicule the study of prophecy and it is not right to do so. Did you know that a special blessing was attached to people who would take the time to study this important book of Revelation? Did you know that? Well, look at verse 3 
of the first chapter of Revelation, and you will see, and I want to leave this thought with you, you will see that there is a special blessing attached to those who would take the time and mental effort to buttress their faith with the unfolding uh, and the seeing of the prophetic fulfillment of the events which take place around them. And this is what the Revelator says. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that keep the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. <laughs>